Hi, and welcome to the Law School Show podcast. My name is Nicole Peroyan, and today I'll be interviewing Chris Graham. Chris has had a really interesting career so far. He's worked in big law in New York, Aboriginal law in Toronto, and most recently has left law and started his own company called Tell People in Toronto. We had a really interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoy. This is the Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi. Hey. When did you ultimately decide, like, I want to go into law school? It's a great question. It was in, I think, the final year of my undergraduate program. I went to Acadia University, which is a very lovely, very small university in Nova Scotia. And I was doing a business degree there. And when I got to the fourth year, I I couldn't really think of anything obvious in business that I wanted to do. And so I thought law school would be the hardest thing I could do intellectually. And so I applied to 20 law schools and was rejected by 18 of them and still ended up going. Wow. Okay, so you wanted something that was intellectually stimulating that, you know, as an... As, as a business student, you kind of had like a few options. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just a really uh, a self-serving way to say that I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And so I went to law school, which I think is very common. But it was there was at least a bit of like, this will be intellectually challenging. Also, my father is a lawyer. And mm. so it was something that was on the possibility horizon for me. You know, if my one of my parents had been a, a scientist, maybe I would have thought about mm. being, doing science. But it was an example of a profession that I had... I was familiar with. Did your father being a lawyer ever make you not want to be a lawyer? Um, not so much. I didn't really think of it that way. Um, he had, he was very skeptical of me going to law school, um, but I think you know at this point he was he'd been a partner at downtown Toronto for I don't know twenty years. So the things that are challenging in his life are very different from the challenges of a law student or a junior lawyer. Mm-hmm. But I never really looked at my dad's career as being at all even relevant to mine uh, because. It, as I'm sure people on this podcast will intuit, your work as an early, like a first-year associate or a young associate, bears very little resemblance both to what you do in law school and what you will do as a partner. Right, yeah. right. So I guess just to start from the beginning when you were in law school, like, did you like law school in first year? Tell me more about that. So when you got there, I think some students, they think they get there and they're like, wow, I made the right choice. This is so exciting. This is so, so intellectually stimulating. And others kind of have the complete opposite of that and think, oh my gosh, I've made such a big mistake. Why did I go to law school? Uh, great, I, uh, great question. So I didn't feel the latter, like, mm-hmm. oh, I've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. But I think my approach in that context is similar to approaches in lots of contexts, which is I... There's no, I have no incentive to think it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I'm here, and my job is to get as much out of it as possible. Right. So I didn't really, <clears throat> I don't think I got there and thought, oh, this is my, my life's work. But it certainly seemed something that would give up a lot of value if I invested time in it. Right. And right. also, I was scared. There's a lot of you know, smart people when you get there, and it's very mm-hmm. intimidating. So. Yeah, I guess leaving can seem like a failure, dropping out, or like what the, the alternative options of not staying in law school can be much scarier than staying. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, to be fair, I never, for what for a second, contemplated dropping out, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, that would be, in some of my subsequent academic careers, I've contemplated leaving those programs, and there's just an enormous amount of social pressure, cultural pressure, mm-hmm. and then personal pressure to not do that. Um, even if it's not as expensive as law school. 
Right. So I guess when you were in law school and then ultimately had to pick your first summer job, which seems to be kind of the first thing that can shape the beginning of your law career when you're a student, like how did you go about picking what you were going to do that first summer or that second summer? So I'll answer first summer and then second summer. So the first summer, I was very strategic about this. So in Toronto, this is 12 years ago now. There were very few firms in Toronto that hired first-year associates, mm-hmm. but Calgary law firms oh, okay. actively hired first-year associates. And so I applied exclusively to Calgary firms. They also interview in like October of first yeah. year. And so this is strategic because I had no idea how I was going to do in first-year law school, mm-hmm. but I already knew that I did amazing in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And so I got that job on the strength of my undergraduate transcript, which is crazy but that was what the system was. And so that's how I got a job first year. That's so smart. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's still the same. It's still uh, the same. Not a lot of Toronto yeah. firms hire in first year. It's, yeah. Yeah, good uh, strategy. Yeah, it worked out. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was also like I just, I didn't, I didn't have any like desire to get a job as a lawyer. It just seemed like the easiest thing to mm. do strategically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it was interesting. I got to live in Calgary. And then in second year, uh, I don't know if it's still like this, but New York law firms interviewed in September, mm-hmm. I think. So that application process came first. I had no idea about New York law firms until second year when we got an email mm-hmm. saying, you can apply to these things. And so I thought, sure, I'll do that. And they interviewed first, and I got to go down to New York a little bit to see the places, which was like the most attention anybody that doesn't have my last name has ever paid to me mm-hmm. and I was sold immediately I thought this seems great I'll just do this and that's it yeah it was like an exciting fast-paced environment to be in for a summer to start I mean to be honest uh, working as a summer associate in New York City is probably the most money for the least mm. work that you can make outside of a royal family <laughs> really um, yeah it's very lavish it's very posh mm-hmm. um I mean, relatively speaking, and again, I don't know, there's been two recessions since I worked mm-hmm. there. I don't know what it's like now, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's very exciting to go to New York, especially if you're like me, a, mm-hmm. a kid from Scarborough. Right. I was very taken with that experience. So yeah, right. I feel very fortunate. So did you end up staying in New York then for after law school? So I went there, yeah, immediately after law school, and I stayed two years and change. This was from 2007 to 2009. Mm-hmm. So in 2007, everything was very exciting. In 2008, there was a financial crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a very challenging time to be there. Fortunately, where I was at a law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, Mm -hmm. it was very busy and there were no mass layoffs. That was not the case at some of the other Mm -hmm. large firms that recruit at UOT. By the time I left in 2009, I guess things had sort of normalized. Um, So I was very fortunate to get through unscathed just worked way harder than I might otherwise have worked right and you do you really feel like you did get those extra years of experience through being in New York like how some people say oh you get you know five years work experience working at a big firm that you would otherwise doing two years of work oh interesting or is that that? I've never heard I don't know I feel like a lot of people say that about working at a big firm that it's that's a good reason to do it that the training is so rigorous Oh, that's interesting. I think, uh, well, the aspect of the training that I found to be rigorous was, um, like, in terms of work product. So, Mm. like, the acceptable level of work product is very, there's a very high uh, expectation, Mm -hmm. which can be trying and frustrating. Not all of the expectations are tied to, like, 
meaningful legal mm-hmm. analysis. Sometimes it's formatting pages or right. stuff like this. Um, but learning how to learning how to be very productive in very short amount of time that was useful. Yeah. But in terms of like going on the learning curve of mm-hmm. legal practice, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think I'm not. I wouldn't say it was like one year in New York is three years in Toronto. Right. I don't think I would agree with that. Okay, but that's well, my experience. No, no, yeah. yeah maybe but, I did it wrong. <laughs> well, ultimately, like, what led you to then leave New York? So, working in New York for me, uh, or I liken it to being at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So you have to be. There are a lot of people there who are really, really good at a very specific thing. Right. Um, do you know who Michael Phelps is? Yeah. The Olympics one. So that guy is an amazing athlete. But I never want to go swimming with him mm-hmm. because he just cares too much about swimming, mm-hmm. right? Like 10 hours on the shoulder blade rotation in his breaststroke. Mm-hmm. And practicing, at least banking law at Sullivan Cromwell, is very much like this. People right. are really focused on bank m mm-hmm. And it's really hard, but if that's not your, like, Olympic, you don't have Olympic-level interest, yeah. it's not for you. Yeah. And that's okay. That's a really good reason to leave. Um, and that's why I did. So about a year into the practice, I realized this is not going to be my thing. Mm-hmm. And it took a year to make other plans. And then I left after two years. Right. Okay. So you had a year when you kind of, you knew you were going to be leaving and planned what you were going to be doing. Next, That's correct. Yeah. Which was, I went to university in England. Mm-hmm. I wanted to read in the humanities. Mm-hmm. So I looked around for a program where I could do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, there's only one program like that in Canada. It's at, King's College yeah, King's, the, uh, Foundation yeah. year. Yeah. So I, I reached out to them, and they were very nice. They came and they let me come and visit, mm-hmm. and then they said, look, if you come here, it'll be you and 198 18-year-olds. Yeah. That... <laughs> it's like, okay. I, so <clears throat> they were very I, – I appreciated their candor. Yeah. And so I went to Britain and studied at uh, the University of Oxford, mm-hmm. where there are no classes. And so you just kind of meet with a tutor once a week for eight weeks. And so even though it's also young Mm -hmm. people, um, there isn't the same level of like interaction. And when it is, when it does come to sort of like, I think, you know, the intellectual rigor at Kings is equally high, Um, but but you're a bit more on your own. Mm -hmm. Even so much the prestige, like I didn't, I still haven't opened my exams. Like I didn't go there to get the degree. I already know how to do school. I just went there to learn. Yeah. To go through the program. So, uh, it was mostly that it was like it's very much self-study it's kind mm-hmm. of like being a master's student but as an undergraduate right okay so you got that way. experience yeah yeah it was lovely so that must have been such a different pace going from working at a new york a huge new york law firm in mna you said to then getting all this time to just be able to have the luxury to just think like did you feel like you just you needed that for your well-being, just for your life, you just wanted to take that time to learn and think because you wanted to, as opposed to going to school. It's interesting. Um, I think <clears throat> uh, what was hardest for me was not so much uh, having too much time. It was uh, training myself to not be so concerned about my use of time. Mm. So when you build your time, you become very conscious of how efficient you are at right. doing stuff and. It starts, like, whether or not you have a good day has a score sheet mm-hmm. with all of your time on it. And that's not, for me at least, that's not how I wanted to live my life. But it was the habit that I had cultivated over the past two to five years. So mostly, like, the emotional challenge of being at school, again, was to not think in terms of billable minutes. Mm. Yeah, so, like, not think about, like, I went to the library today for 3.7 hours. Right. Which I did for a long time think about that. Um, 
I mean, this is a very fortunate problem to work on, but that's what I was working on. Right, yeah, but it, it can, being so conscious of your time, it, it is, it, I can't imagine that that would become a very bizarre and maybe even overwhelming way to be thinking about your day in such a structured way constantly. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it just wasn't for me. Like, there are lots of, I mean, to go back to the Olympic athlete analogy, mm-hmm. like, that's what it's like being a professional athlete. Yeah. It's a very structured <clears throat> thing. Um, mm-hmm. And to the certain extent, now that I have my own business, mm-hmm. my time is very regimented and very planned. Mm-hmm. But I think I just like this work more than I did back when I was practicing law. Right. Yeah. Okay, so then moving then more in history. So then after your degree in England, did you come back to Canada right away? I did. I decided that I would work on writing a novel for a year. So I came back and took freelance writing jobs uh, while I lived in a very small apartment and worked on a novel Mm -hmm. every day. Finished a draft, shared it with some of my friends, and they said they would stop being friends with me if I made them read any more (laughs) shit novel. Uh, And then I worked as... I did some more freelance writing. I wrote for a legal encyclopedia. Wow. in Canada, it's called Halsbury's. Oh, yeah. So I did some writing for them. I'm sure a lot of law students have used them, or the Supreme Court cites them all the time. Sorry for all the mistakes (laughs) and the updating. Um, So I did that for uh, a number of years. Was that fun? That sounds awful. Um, it depends. Like it's, it, you have to sort of think about it in context. Right. And so it's not very difficult compared to law school or working at a law firm. Right. It pays pretty well as far as writing jobs go. Mm-hmm. And you, it facilitated like me working on a mm-hmm. novel full time and right. doing storytelling and stand-up comedy and all kinds of other things. So it wasn't like I didn't work. It's, it was contract work. So I didn't sit down like eight right. hours a day and right. update encyclopedias. Um, but yeah, you know, there's also a reason why it's not my career. Right. Um, but I am, I am very grateful. And if this part makes it on the podcast, I'm very, <laughs> I am very, they've been very good to me at LexisNexis and supported me in the times when I needed work. So I felt very grateful for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then you've worked in New York, then you've gone to England, you've done contract work f- for a legal encyclopedia. How did you end up in Aboriginal law after that? It's a great question. So when I was in New York, I worked with a guy, well, there's a guy in my class at Sullivan and Cromwell. And when I left New York City, he stayed at the firm for two more years and then came back to Toronto and became a partner in this Aboriginal rights law firm mm. in the city. And, uh, you know, if people, anybody on the podcast has a small business or knows a small law firm, they always have too much work mm-hmm. that they can manage. And so he said, why don't you come and do some work for us? Because I know you have, you're very talented and, you know, we need somebody to help us out. So that's how I got involved. It was a very, wow. it was totally coincidental. And it just was a sort of a stars aligning. Maybe yeah. It was a bit too faded, but it was, you know, right place, right time, that kind of thing. So you were how many years out of having even practiced law at that point? Great question. Two, four, let's say four years. Was that intimidating to go back to being a practicing lawyer after having taken those years off? No, not at all. I, I mean, I don't know how this is going to sound, but like, so one of them you, you asked before about like learning some sort of skill set in New York City that's mm-hmm. more valuable. So I, maybe one of the other things is that I'm not intimidated by anything mm. anymore. <clears throat> so like, no, it was not hard. Nothing is going to be as hard as what I did when I was in New York, which is, it was shit at the time, but like, that's kind of nice to have now. Right. Your barometer for what's hard or what's normal has like changed maybe since working in New York. Partly that, but also, I mean, I think it's probably the case given any time you get your, once you figure out 
once you get your mm-hmm. first law job, mm-hmm. you realize that you can just do it. Right. right. <clears throat> it's you know, it's in you. Yeah, law, be, law school is not the same as practicing. Right. But you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so then once you figure it out, mm-hmm. then you know you can just figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what it was like when I went to the Aboriginal space. Mm-hmm. And you spent a few years, uh, you spent a few years working there? Three years of change, right. I think, yeah. And how was that experience? Were you traveling a lot? Were, did you travel around the country? Were most of the clients in Ontario? Good question. So I traveled some. Many in the firm traveled much more. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the clients were all across the country, um, less so on the East Coast, but mostly from Ontario mm-hmm. West and up north. Um, most of the partners did a lot of traveling, and then I was one of the first associates, and so I would often just be back at the office doing work right so i and when i was there i did corporate law so i was revising agreements you know being the person on the conference call taking notes things Mm. like that not exclusively but it wasn't as much travel as it you would expect it to be as an aboriginal lawyer right right okay so uh i want to just talk about now how you ultimately decided to leave the legal profession twice, as you said, once after New York, and then your second time came about after this job at the Aboriginal law firm. Is that right? That's correct. So what what was it about, you know, being a lawyer or then maybe that's not the way of the right way to look at it or not being a lawyer that appealed to you more? You know, did you was it was it that you didn't like certain aspects of the law or that you liked your other options more? Or do you view that as the yeah, same thing? Yeah, I think, I guess I would, I'm not sure if, if it's really a dichotomy like that, mm-hmm. although I think I would lean towards the second thing that mm-hmm. you said. So both times, when I finished, when I was at the Aboriginal firm, sort of two and a half years, <clears throat> uh, I found myself, again, not being super excited about what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it was terrible, just, it just is not, I don't think it was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I noticed at that point was, it took about a year and a half to figure that out in New York City, which is a bit one way of practicing law, mm-hmm. a very large corporation, for lack of a better term. And then the Aboriginal boutique I was at was literally four guys in a house right. in Toronto. And so that's another completely different way to practice law. There are lots of other ways to practice law, mm-hmm. but when I was sort of getting to the end of my time at the Aboriginal firm, there wasn't anything obvious on the horizon for me in legal practice that was very different from those two experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I could take something else uh, at a different firm or something like this, but in, you know, two years, I'm going to be right back in the same place where it seems very likely. So I need to do something radically different. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense it was, yeah, I feel like I'll like something else a lot more than I've liked practicing law. Mm -hmm. But that also is just a function of there wasn't uh, any other really interesting legal practice around at the time. I recently just discovered that a lot of movie producers are lawyers. Yes. <clears throat> like a huge number of them. So maybe that would have been fun. A lot of what I do now is produce. Um, right. So maybe that would have been fun, but that like that just wasn't on the horizon. Yeah, there are so many jobs where having a legal degree would actually be highly beneficial where you're not necessarily practicing law just by the book, but you're using the skill set you learned either in law school or through legal experience that involves something that's more artistic maybe or has like both a business and an artistic lens to it yeah I think that's true I, I mean I maybe I think a slightly different version of that which is lots and lots of people go to like too many people go yes. to law school it's an oversupply mm-hmm. so what that means is those people are also very creative mm-hmm. artistic expressive whatever and so of course those people are going to use their legal training mm-hmm. in whatever else, whatever it is that they do if they don't become mm-hmm. a lawyer 
So I think in that sense, I always think it's funny when law schools say it's it's guaranteed to be useful because it opens lots of yeah. doors. I think it's more like uh, people are opening their own doors and they're just bringing their law degree with them. Right. I don't know if that really makes it. Either way, you're you're still going through a different door mm-hmm. and being you know being in good stead, but. Um, yeah, I don't think it's... I mean, people use the tools that are in their toolbox. And so mm-hmm. if you went to law school and subsequently become uh, some sort of creative person, of course you're going to use mm-hmm. in certain ways uh, the training you have at law school in the same way you would use the training you had if you went to a med school or yeah. have an English degree or open your own business instead of going to school, whatever whatever it is. Do you consider yourself a creative person? Yes, absolutely. And do you feel like you really learned that about yourself through the extracurricular activities you're doing like the storytelling and now stand-up comedy or and the writing like what Mm. when when did you really feel like you were part of a creative community and in correlation with your with your law career were you doing this stuff in new york or did you only start after going to england it's a good question yeah i only started after going to england um i was sort of divide up my life into the like first 27 years which were a forced march towards being some kind of professional Mm -hmm. and then I quit my job in New York and started meditating and you know uh, doing a lot of self-care therapy things like this and so in that sense became much more embodied as a person and much more open to all kinds of creative projects so one of the manifestations of that was storytelling Mm -hmm. so standing on a stage and telling stories to strangers there's a huge community of people in, in Toronto that do this. <clears throat> and I started that almost as soon as I got back from England. So that was nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for nine years. Um, yeah, so I think it was, yeah, it was after my stint in New York that I started to become, or at least allow myself to become more and more creative. Right. Yeah. And then, so now, maybe if you could tell us a bit about the company that you started since then and how that kind of links to your creativity and, and why you chose to start it. Oh, this is a great question. Uh, so I'll answer the last part first. Why I chose to start it. Um, this maybe is going to sound a bit glib, but starting a business is just like, what am I good at that people might pay money for? Mm. Uh, that's the basic calculus. <clears throat> and so when I stopped being a lawyer, I thought I have this... You know, what am I good at? Well, storytelling. And, you know, three or four years ago, it was very much in the ether. Mm-hmm. So people were talking about storytelling. It was a buzzword. And I thought, well, maybe I can make a business out of this. And it's an opportunity to, to perform. So what we do at Tell People is we teach storytelling and communication to professionals. And because I used to be a lawyer, a lot of our clients are law firms in Toronto New York, uh, and in the U.S. And so what we do is we run workshops that train lawyers how to talk about their work better, how to argue in court better, how to talk to their clients better. And, you know, if you think about a workshop, it's really a person at the front performing Mm -hmm. for the people in the audience and being creative about how to interact with the people in the audience so they can, in a really, in a serious way, co-create a learning experience. Because just lecturing to people, as maybe people on the podcast can think of their law school classes this Mm -hmm. way sometimes, lecturing is not very exciting or effective. And so... Being a performer uh, or doing a lot more performing has helped me create something that lawyers have found very exciting and, and, you know, I'm grateful to say lots of other professions have found exciting and useful. Yeah, I I can see it. It's just such a useful skill and I'm sure a lot of students can relate to the professor who you can tell they know so much about a subject and they're, you know, maybe world-renowned in a subject, but they're just really bad 
at lecturing and their class is so boring to go to, but you love reading their papers and how do you, you know, teach people who are ultimately actually boring when they're lecturing to not be boring anymore? Yeah, yeah, that's my whole job. Um, although, just for the record, I had none of those professors when I was at U of T. Oh, I don't either. It's this is, professors yeah. This. yeah, this is purely just hypothetical. I've heard of this before through other people who've had boring professors. Yeah. So, so how do you? I mean, is this giving away all your secrets? Like, Do you have any oh. advice for students who struggle with how to how to talk about, you know, even just something typical like talking when someone asks them like, oh, how was your year at law school? Or, um, you know, what the the boring questions people always ask you, how do you turn a boring question into an interesting answer? Uh, Great question. Um, Well, so maybe I'll I'll first, because I know this is a a, a podcast for students Mm -hmm. and job interviews are for better or worse, something that people worry about a lot. So I'll first answer this in the context of an interview. Because you get questions like that all the time. Yes. Tell me about your year, or they'll look at you know, be like, "Oh, you did moot court. Tell me about moot mm-hmm. court." So the way to answer that in an interesting and effective way is to say something like, "Thanks very much for asking." It turns out that moot court, or whatever it is, uh, it turns out that moot court is really a story about teamwork and accountability. Mm-hmm. And then you just talk about your time on moot court. Uh, And the reason that's an effective way to answer it is that it's possible somebody listening to your response will infer, like, oh, this is Nicole telling me that she was a team player and is accountability. But how do you know what they're going to take from your story at Moot Court? Maybe they didn't moot at school. Maybe they lost. Maybe they're, like, who knows? Uh, And so if you start by letting people know why it's important or, like, what you want them to take from your answer, it's a lot easier for them to follow along and engage with you Mm -hmm. in the way that you want to be engaged. And getting to the second part of your question, how do you make a boring question into an interesting answer? What that really means is an interesting answer is one that somebody wants to engage with. Mm. And so if you make it easy for people to engage by saying, yeah, you know what was great about Moocourt? Teamwork and accountability. It's easier for them to hear your response and then get into it with you as opposed to just having their eyes glaze over while you go on and on. Right. uh, Or even give a very interesting answer about Moocourt. But they don't know... Uh, while you're talking, what you want the point to be. That's true. It seems like you're saying having some structure at the beginning can really help. I find sometimes, just from my experience doing improv or any storytelling, sometimes structure can actually bring more creativity to your answer because you have a, a starting point, right? And then now you're able to flow more easily with your answer because you've given kind of a little bit of a beginning and end about where you're going to take the answer. And I feel like lawyers would like that. They would, since a lot of them like rules or are are very, legal writing requires a lot of um, structure and so does advocacy work. So I would imagine that that would be a very successful way to answer an interview question. Uh, It has been my experience that it has been very successful. Yeah. Yeah. But I, that's interesting, Nicole. I want to hear more about improv as a way to add create like structure through creativity because I think that's very smart. Um, so, how do you use that when you interview for jobs? Well, I think one of the big lessons of improv is to be comfortable with failure and be good under and so that helps you be good under pressure. So, when you feel calm and just take a deep breath when someone asks you a question and you think. Well, the worst case scenario is I'm just going to ask this, answer this badly. And then that can relax you. And then you can start viewing the question as 
um, a little bit more of like a game and like break down the question in your head quickly and then start through that structure start um, using creativity I mean that was a bit of a convoluted way to answer it but I think the the way I'm thinking of it is more whenever there are improv games whether it's something like to you're doing a scene with a person and you can only answer in two word sentences two word sentences or seven word sentences and you're so consciously thinking about the amount of words you can use but then you also have to be playing an emotional character often when you're given some sort of structure you end up being a better actor because you aren't overthinking so much you're so focused on the rules that you forget that maybe you look silly or that you sound bizarre or not normal so often um, having rules it seems counterintuitive but having rules helps people be more creative because um, it gets rid of that embarrassment factor or the pride people have sometimes when they're mm. they're trying to be more emotional and more creative which I think in interviews all the time you're actually being very vulnerable when you're answering questions and I and I I mean I don't know what you think about this but I think a lot of people a lot of students maybe have the wrong idea that you should almost be a character of yourself or a persona of yourself of this very serious student when you're in an interview. Like, what do you think yeah. about that? Like, I hear students all the time, they almost, it sounds like, have a mask on when they're being interviewed. What have you noticed? Mm. I mean, from you've mentored students during the OCI process, what have you noticed that some students falsely assume about how to, be in an, how to behave in an interview? That's interesting. Um, I, I do want to clock that I think it's a great interview challenge to see if you can respond in only seven words to every question. <laughs> yeah, imagine. <clears throat> we should make, there should be some sort of challenge for that next year. <laughs> Could seem confident or bizarre. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anybody would notice unless you're that's actually true. counting. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so what, I mean, I think, so putting on a persona or like trying to act in a particular way yeah, generally speaking, I think you want to, uh, that's a, f uh, well, if it's a fool's errand, for lack of a better phrase, um, or to say it exactly as it is, because it is apparent to people energetically when you are attempting to control your emotions mm. or your behavior, and it makes people uncomfortable, so people can feel that. Um, I think... I'm always amazed when people feel like they need to suppress their personality and then mm -hmm. they articulate what it is that they think that they need to suppress, like smiles or fun or something like this. Uh, I don't think you should get into an interview and start doing like jumping jacks or burpees or break out into a stand-up routine, but you should be a person, Yes. you know, um, and another, maybe this is a, related to what you were saying about how you have rules and the focus on following the rules can make it very difficult to focus on anything else. I did this thing once when I was in England. I used to be a life model. Mm -hmm. so I, and I, the first time I did it was for a newspaper article for fun to see what it would be like. Like <clears> as, <throat> where people are sketching you? Yeah, so pose nude and people draw you. And I had this feeling at the time, as soon as I sort of dropped the cloth, that like I need to stay super flexed and just the whole <laughs> time. And it's hard because there people are all around you. Like right. they circle you. And so you can sort of focus, like just try it. Try to focus on all parts of your body mm -hmm. at the same time. It's impossible. And so it took about 15 seconds to be like, oh, my leg, oh, my butt, oh, my chest. Right. And then I just gave up. And this is kind of what it's like in the interview. Like, you can't mm -hmm. stay on top of it um, uh, in any significant way for the whole time. Uh, and you shouldn't try. Yeah, and I think you touched on more emotional aspects of interviews. And I think so often when students hear advice about interviews, whether it's from the 
career center mm. or other or other students people uh focus a lot about on what the answer is and how to structure it as opposed to how you should feel in an interview and i mm. think we often don't talk enough about yeah just emotions in interviews and it's i often think of interviews and particularly the OCI process almost like dating it's like much closer to the experience of going on a first date with someone than this like really structured uh environment and it's like you said like you don't want to be doing jumping jacks or doing a stand-up routine and going so far you know and mm. being inappropriate when you say you want to be yourself but then I think people I've always felt that it would help a lot um if we just act like we would with having a conversation with friends because ultimately if they like you you're going to be their coworker and spending as a first year associate or articling student countless hours potentially with the person who's interviewing you across the table yeah i guess maybe uh, i agree completely and another way to say it maybe is <clears throat> even if you can manage to get through a five a 15 minute interview and then a two-hour firm visit affecting a particular persona it's not sustainable for a summer of work Right. So it will break down and you want to behave in a way that you're Mm -hmm. comfortable with for the long term. Mm -hmm. Um, On the point about emotions, I think uh, I I think I take the point about being overfocused on the content of answers. Um, And to be honest, when I coach people or when I used to coach people, most of the work involved is getting people to calm down. And so Mm -hmm. how can you structure the experience so that you are the most in control of your emotions or able to be responsive to your emotions. And so some of the things that have been very helpful for me and for all the people I've worked with is one of them is don't get to the interview super early. So Mm. for OCI, this is a bit tricky, but if you're going to work to interview at a firm, sit down in the lobby of the building until 10 minutes before the interview with your headphones in, Mm -hmm. then go up to the interview, check in, and then go to immediately go to the washroom and just compose yourself, but spend as much time as possible away from the other people who are interviewing. Because even if they're good people, their stress is infectious. Yes, that's good advice. Uh, Yeah, and like, so there's no prep that requires this. You don't have to have good answers Mm -hmm. to just avoid getting infected by other people's Mm -hmm. nervousness. When I was at OCIs in Toronto, they have the uh, the Metro Toronto Convention yes, Center. Yes, a huge place. A huge place, and they have a breakout room for all of the students. It's a large, kind of like a large classroom. Mm-hmm. And I did not go. I couldn't tell you what it looks like in there because I didn't go in there once. Mm-hmm. I went to my interviews, and then I went literally almost a kilometer in the opposite direction. The convention center is very large. Yes. To a cafe, and I sat there and didn't talk to anybody the whole time <clears throat> because there's very little to learn from people in interviews. There's no sort of like tips or anything. You can't predict what people are going to ask. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, like I just want to be calm. And seeing other people be stressed or anxious or whatever is very, very unlikely to make me feel better about myself. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would like you said, assume the opposite and say, I should come as early as possible just in case anything happens. But I mean, it's a very organized process. If your time is at a certain time, that's when your interview is going to be. And so just get there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In a calm state for the interview. Calm state. And then as soon as the interview is over, there is a tendency to like jump on your phone or talk to other people. Mm. Don't do this. Go straight down to the lobby of the building again and then get out your journal. Mm. It's been five minutes writing down all of your feelings about the interview because all of the energy has to go somewhere. So just let it out into mm-hmm. the journal, close the journal, and then go for a walk. And definitely don't check your email or your phone oh, yeah. <laughs> in between, especially, you know, because even if you are getting 
interview requests or like come back for cocktails or I know yes. there's the stuff during the day in Toronto. Like there's no way for you to like be present and respond to those messages while at the same time being present and preparing for the next interview. It's a lot to juggle. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have a busy schedule. Just set time, set aside time at the end of the day to sit down and go through all of that correspondence in what will take you literally 20 minutes. Yeah, and the taking that time... I would imagine to journal, it's, it's only a few minutes that will make all your other communications later in the day better and you'll just sound more like yourself if you're feeling more relaxed and at ease, taking that time to be introspective. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's really a question of being intentional about your behavior. And so I don't know anybody who's like, if they had their ultimate control over their performance and they had complete control over their pregame routine, they would they would choose to design it by sitting next to people who are super nervous or checking their phone for updates about mm. information uh, or feedback from interviews that they can't have yet or doing anything other than like sitting quietly and visualizing a successful experience. And so as much as you can sort of make that possible for yourself, and sometimes you can't. You have a busy schedule. Lots of people have commitments that don't involve law school firm interviews, right? People interview on their work break, things like this. All of this is fine. Um, You just want to, as much as possible, uh, create space for yourself to be calm. And as you say, you're you're sort of best self. Yeah. Just your normal self. Yeah, I think that's a really great point to kind of end on. Do you have any last words of wisdom or anything that, you know, the cliche you, you wish you would have known in law school if you could go back to you as a student in law school that you would have done differently or that you think that you did actually really well? Um, Well, in terms of doing well, I think what I said about creating space for yourself between Mm -hmm. uh, people who are feeling very anxious and yourself. So I would do this during exams. I didn't study at the law school at all for like a whole month. I I would only go there to write exams. And that was possible for me given where I lived, but I guess that would be something that I think is it was smart and i've validated that by talking to other people since um the thing i would say uh, if i had to uh, i don't know i don't think if this counts as advice but uh what i would tell my law school self now is that the stakes are much lower than they seem Mm. and i don't i don't know what uh what difference that actually makes because you're still in it like you have these feelings like you're going to interview in a couple months Mm -hmm. and yeah even though like it is true that the stakes aren't as high but like your feelings are still real yes. and it's okay. And so if in some measure it can, it can make you feel a little bit calmer, great, but don't worry if it doesn't. But maybe I can tell you this tiny story about interview screw-ups that happened to me and it's very unlikely that something so bad will happen to anybody listening to this podcast. And so you can take heart at least <laughs> in this. So I said that I interviewed uh, to go to New York City and I had... They come just for one day to do an OCI process, and I, I had four or five interviews over the course of the day. It was my first time ever doing any kind of professional job interview, so I had no idea what to expect. And I got through sort of the whole day, and I guess did was doing fine or felt like I was doing fine. It was all a whirlwind. And the last interview of the day was at a law firm called Sullivan & Cromwell, which is where I ultimately worked. And I sat down in the interview, and it was a partner and, a, and an associate. And the partner had been to U of T like 20, 20 years ago, and the associate had been to U of T five years ago. They always bring somebody with a mm-hmm. connection. And the partner would ask questions, and I would sort of respond, try to respond to both of them. But the associate kept looking at me in this way that suggested I should only talk to the partner. Mm-hmm. It was very bizarre. I'd never seen anything like this in my whole life. 
And so it threw me off. I didn't know what to do. They're sitting literally six inches yeah. apart, so I don't know how you could tell. Um, but that was kind of disorienting, and it was tired. And But anyway, so I got through the interview, and at the end, I stood up, and I shook everybody's hand, and I said, thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here interviewing with Sherman and Sterling. <laughs> right to their face, the complete wrong firm. And the associate just went white, and the partner looked nonplussed. <laughs> and I just said, that's wrong. Sullivan and Cromwell... I'm sorry, it's been a very long day. And then I just walked out. Uh, and I got hired. Wow. Immediately. So it, it, the stakes just really aren't that high. Lots of people make mistakes. Uh, of course, it's an opportunity to show that you're very calm and not flustered. Good under like, pressure. Like, whatever. It's yeah. Just, and, and it's just not a big deal. Yeah. Um, like, you can't tell in the pockets, but I have Nicole's name written on my hand <laughs> in case I forget. And she's sitting right here, and it's okay. Um, so yeah, so if maybe that is a story I can uh, offer to people who are listening as yeah. a way to just feel a little bit more safe when they embark on their, what's a high stress situation to be in interviews? Yeah, I think that's great. The stakes are not as high as you think. I'm going to remember that. Where can we find more about your company and your website, social media? Oh, sure. So the, the company is called Tell People. Mm -hmm. The website is tellpeople.ca and the social media or on Instagram and LinkedIn at, at tell underscore people. Uh, and if you go to the website, there are lots of videos on our YouTube channel about public speaking, how to communicate with people, and there might even be some stand-up comedy on there. I'm not sure. Very cool. Well, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time, Chris. Thank you, Nicole. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career Advancing Advice, right to your earbuds.